You're now listening to the Something Good Podcast Network. Please press any key to continue. A kiss, as defined by Dan Webster, is something pleasing, a caress, a gentle touch. But there's another kiss that isn't in Webster's. Hey world, we're kids! Some critics say they don't make music, they just make noise. Yeah, kiss! Kiss employs the extreme in the theatrics on stage, utilizing fire and smoke and bizarre costumes and the ever-consistent, constant concealment of their true identities. Speaking of which, Kiss is going to have its own comic book soon. Take Kiss with you. It's fun. Show your friends and be the first. Now. And welcome to No Time to Turn, a Kiss Nerd Podcast. Nerds. That's us. Joining me as always is Cap and Alex from the Something Good For You Podcast. Yo, yo. Heard over most of these same internets. If you if you take the time and trouble to find it and it's well worth finding, you'll find something. If good, we're still making new something episodes, good for you. <laughs> something we good had, for you. We, we hadn't done them in a minute. We need to get back in the swing of that. We haven't. Well, then I guess it's not yet something good for you. <laughs> Thanks for we've been the, focusing the, on the kiss stuff well, right that now. Was, that, that was a giant waste of breath. Hey, we've got a big Christmas special that we're still promoting. Oh, well, <laughs> yep. That was like that was like a year ago. I know, right? God. <laughs> uh, so we're tracking the history of Kiss album by album, year by year. We are not experts, blah blah blah. We don't promote other. Uh, we're not. We're not tied into anything Kiss officially. We're not part of any inside information. We're just a bunch of random nerds that like to talk about Kiss. Big old fans. And uh, we've been tracking the history, like I said, album by album, year by year. And we're going to come across the curious anomaly that is known as Kiss Killers. Yes. In the year 1982, coming off the heels of the uh, abysmal failure that was Music from the Elder. And this is kind of one that's, uh, I'd say, not largely forgotten, but kind of slips through the cracks in history just because uh, it's a compilation album that was only made to be sold in Europe. It's from what correct. It was yes. important. Well, okay, with the failure of the elder Polygram, which is now, of course, Kiss's record company because it bought out Cosmonica, which we've talked about in previous episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, they're sitting, you know, they're the they're the bosses. And we've talked in the previous episode how Kiss seemed to have enjoyed a, a kind of an unprecedented, well, I wouldn't say unprecedented, but a very unusual relationship with Casablanca in that they had the head of the record label, which was Neil Bogart, really allowing them carte blanche to kind of do what they wanted and how they wanted. I mean, occasionally he called in what he wanted, but by and large, you know, they had a very healthy free reign to do what they wanted. Here... They no longer have that. The polygram guys, the powers that be, the suit and tie guys in the green room and the brain trust have, you know, counted the chips and did not, did not come up with a healthy sum. And this music from the elder business has got to stop. <laughs> so they demand a, uh, a repackaging of older songs with four new songs, specifically hard rock songs, specifically commercial hard rock none songs on your, your concept album bullshit guys <laughs> <laughs> basically so now they have to meet the demands of these new bosses and as we've st- stated at the end of the previous episode kiss no longer lead they are led mm-hmm. um, 
and this will be their first collaboration with a producer named Michael Jackson, who I guess is re- rechristened Michael James Jackson to By, avoid mm-hmm. confusion. Confusion, because I mean, do you, you know. know the lore behind that? Supposedly, if we want to believe everything that's written, supposedly Gene Simmons is the one that named him Michael James Jackson. Well, he, according to Gene, he would he'd tell you he discovered the Jackson 5, too, but still. It, that's why I said if we want to believe what oh, we wow. read. I mean, it seemed like they would have just like left it Michael Jackson and been like... <laughs> just to get some eyebrows that's raised. Still, yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, they probably... They, you know, I'm sure they thought of that after the fact. They probably were like sitting around going... Shit. (laughs) (laughs) So this guy, Michael James Jackson, had mostly worked with MOR acts, middle of the road. It's a radio format. It's that kind of what the name implies, middle of the road. Very inoffensive (laughs) kind of acts. Uh, He produced Paul Williams, the the, uh, diminutive singer from the early 70s that seemed to be on every uh, late night talk show and... uh, and, uh, variety show and played uh he was the lead in phantom of the paradise okay he was uh little enos burdett in the smoking the bandit movies um but he was also a hit songwriter wrote a lot of the big middle of the road kind of classics of the time he wrote just an old-fashioned love song Michael James Jackson produced that, his version. He also produced Pablo Cruz, but he had also produced the first Red Rider record, which was a Canadian kind of kind of a hard rock band. They would have a hit later, a year later, with the song Lunatic Fringe, which I think still gets, oh, I think okay. I got frozen into the FM classic rock <laughs> radio playlists to this very day. Um, yep. He didn't produce that song. But that's about the closest to hard rock that he's ever gotten. And now he's being brought in for Kiss. For Kiss, uh, from the information I've got, Howard Marks is responsible for this. He's the connection, and uh, I think they shared an attorney and something to do with Diana Ross. I'm not exactly sure, Um, but it's just kind of like that's where the Diana Ross thing, you know, it's interwoven somehow. uh, You know, some of this stuff gets fuzzy to me. And, you know, I I just all I can see is that ostensibly he's brought in because he is a song oriented producer, whatever that means. And I guess because the demand here is to make commercial songs and things. But I think more importantly, this had to be a cost cutting measure. Because apparently the band still didn't feel comfortable producing themselves, or maybe the record company wasn't going to allow it at this point. I I would think the latter. So I'm sure it's probably all of the above. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Um, And he goes, he gets vetted through a process where he meets individually with uh, Paul, and then Gene, and then Bill Coin. Which is interesting because Bill Coin, as we talked about in the previous episode, he's year to year here, and he's on very thin ice yeah um and i think it's jackson who brings in adam mitchell into the songwriting process who's going to contribute heavily to these songs and songs on the next album which will be creatures of the night yeah and the only thing i can find on adam mitchell was that he had a uh, hit with olivia newton john of all things okay and yeah, here he is with Kiss. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is the way this some of this is going to go. It's some curi- curious stuffs going on here. Um, Ace has not yet formally quit, but 
I think he's gearing up to be out of the picture. Yeah. Um, when does this car wreck happen? Isn't it April of 81? It does happen right around this time period. And, and the whole narrative that's at least written is that limos were sent to his place over and over and over and he just never got into any of them which is why he wasn't included in the recording process for these four new songs no, that wouldn't be right because they recorded these in los angeles so i'm gonna i'm gonna say that's that's not a true fact but which car wreck is this weren't there like a few <laughs> well i did i think the i think the delorean wreck the famous delorean wreck was this spring of 81 okay i'm pretty sure I don't know if y'all got that ability to pull that up, but at any rate, he's not going to participate in these sessions for these four new songs. Bob Kulick will play lead guitar. Um, now, I wonder how he wound up getting wrapped back into it. Was it just because it was a familiar person they had worked I'm with, sure, or was I'm he sure of kind of in be. background talks even? I think it was just, let's get somebody they know. It's quick. Let's let's get go. We've got, to, we've got to have this out. we got to go. There's a demand here by our record company. You know, they said jump. How high? Yeah. <laughs> jump. What color? Yeah. <laughs> Do we know uh, why it was only released in Europe only? I don't know. Ostensibly, it's because um, it's because um, they already had double platinum and two live albums in America that were, you know, but it doesn't make sense. It's like, well, then why we even put four new songs on it if it's going to go out in foreign markets? The only thing so. I could think of is because they had reached that recent success with like Dynasty and Unmasked. Yeah, the those they well in foreign markets, so mm. that maybe that was the logic. I, I you know, it's I don't know. Um, no, because uh, the U.S. like actually fun fact about this: the United States did not get an official version of this until 2014. Yeah, when they okay. did the Casteria box set, everything else had to be an import. There was no like official U.S. release of right. this for a long time. Well, they go into recording this, and um, Bob Kulik says the band weren't real clear with what they wanted they seemed pretty fragmented and fractured here and they didn't know what they wanted but they knew what they didn't want yeah which, which was, was pretty yeah. much everything he was trying to do <laughs> and they were kind of giving him carte blanche i mean previously he was like try to steer towards what you think ace might play yeah which i mean he ace wasn't going to play all american man but whatever uh, here he's just kind of told to, you know, play, do your thing, do your thing. And he's, you know, doing the whammy bar thing and mm -hmm. all that dumb shit. <laughs> it's very of the times. Tell us how you really feel time. about the whammy bar, Russ. Of course, this is post Van Halen where every guitar player well, is that's, following yeah. those footsteps now. So we get four new songs here and, um, that's really about all I've got for background on this. What do y'all have? Anything? Not much, other than that uh, the recording process was very quick. They basically just went in, hammered it out, um, and that, it's as I mentioned on the previous episode, that Eric Carr seemed to be a little bit happier with these songs than they were with the Elder stuff. This is kind of... Really? He was happy with this? Because it was moving in a bit more of a hard rock direction. Or, uh, like, or like it sounded more... More traditional kiss than the he elders. He was happy did. with this. Then I, happy, I have lost happy, a sizable amount of respect happy for the Happy may not be the right word right. to use. I would say more satisfied. There you go. <laughs> um, there's a lot going on here in the year 1982. And, oh yeah. Um, 
this album is only just kind of a stopgap, if that. It's not even, I don't even know if it's fair to call it that. Um, most people aren't even going to be aware that this album has even come out, certainly in, you know, as far as the American consciousness of what Kiss is. Um, Interesting cover, too, because um, actually, for one, it's the- of all the Kiss covers, from like the eighties and stuff, I actually really like this one. The uh, the upside down triangle with the uh, the light bar behind it, and they actually use a photo of all four of the members. I just think from a design aspect, that's actually not a bad looking record cover. If the music had been better in it, see, I think it looks kind of t- cobbled together and thrown together. It looks like something I'd say at a bargain bin at yeah. a. Uh, well, I mean, it looks would. like it's what it is. It looks like it's a. But you know, here you get four new songs. So let's let's go through these four new yeah all songs, all Paul Stanley jams. <laughs> yes, a, no uh, Gene yeah, songs. You're right. You know what? I did not even consider that. And I truly believe, um, because by this point, Gene even admits in his own book he was fully disconnected by now. He he had gone, you know, as the band, and he calls Hollywood. You know, he was he was trying to do movie. Well, we know he did a he did a screen test somewhere mm-hmm. in this era for the movie Flashdance. Is it for Flashdance? He was doing a screen test that exists, and then which got, is interesting because no one knew what they looked. They still had not. But he was going around doing this. Yeah, and it, but um, I think it's important to note that it's not that he's doing it; it's that nobody cares that there's a video of Gene Simmons with no makeup on. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and no one right. cares that you can now see, you know, it's just like no one cares. And in Gene's book, he also mentions around this time period, during that screen test, he was talking with uh, one of the producers, and then they offered him his own TV show. And then he started talking to the management about it, and they said, well, you'd be getting this amount per episode. So you would essentially be paying for the right to be on TV. You'd be making less money now than you are in Kiss versus being part of the TV show. That's in his uh yeah, that makeup book that he put that out like around like farewell Gene tour. hyperbole to me, but who knows? Who, who knows? knows? Who I mean, knows? at this point in the game, I can't see that being true. <clears throat> I mean, they were still getting they, those uh, contracts from Polygram still, that yeah, were still you know pretty yeah, lucrative at the which, time, and that's going to get wonky here. And we'll we'll explain why. But let's let's go ahead and run these four songs down real quick, and yeah. then we'll we'll talk at length about this Polygram stuff. Um, I'm a legend tonight. Uh, this sounds like Paul Stanley on a treadmill once again, you know, with his <laughs> Paul headband. Paul likes to work out. Yes. <laughs> it's like a, it's kind of like Live to Win where it should be like, a, where it's a montage song. <laughs> All of these songs, that's exactly what I'm going to say about another one. But I'm a legend tonight. I've got, this sounds like a less polished unmasked track, like a, like. It does. I can see this like on Unmasked. Unmasked was, you know, had that, we've talked about it, had that high sheen kind mm-hmm. of, you know, gloss production. This doesn't have that, but it seems to be of that same kind of writing style. With those eighth note bass, lo- bass yeah. notes and. But it's generic, and I, that's what I wrote, like a B movie theme. And this, and this, of course, is co written by Adam Mitchell, who did that Olivia Newton John song, as per mention, too. I can see this being like, you know, some, uh, the theme, the opening. Uh, credits to a <laughs> you know Skinamax movie. <laughs> so I, I the only thing I really pull from this song every time when I think about it is that opening guitar riff. And the thing is, is this kind of goes for all four of the songs. And I may be completely off the mark here, but this is at least my opinion. This sounds like Lick It Up before Lick It Up that album because it almost sounds like they're going in the Lick It Up direction. They pivot slightly for creatures, 
but then they fall right back into this. It feels like these four I'd songs would fit on Lick It Up. These do not feel like makeup kiss songs to me. No, Creatures was definitely has a heavier tone, but these it's definitely It's like even are- Creatures feels like a makeup kiss record. Even even songs like I mean, we're going to get to it, but even songs like Danger. You know, that still feels like a makeup kiss song. No, all four of these songs do not feel like makeup kiss songs to they me. They feel uh, You know what? Now that you say that, you know what they they feel very much like Paul Stanley solo songs yeah mm-hmm. which is very much I, you know, I had not even considered that until just this moment which is interesting because he gets writers that worked with him on a solo album yeah michael jap uh down on your knees yeah speaking of uh that he has the co-write with him on this but this is also a first time collaboration with a relatively unknown canadian named Brian fucking Adams. <laughs> that, that's that. that that's, Bri- yes, that's, that Brian Adams. <laughs> but that's you know that's just his Canadian middle name. <laughs> <laughs> Down on your knees, probably the most forgettable. Really? See, I thought this was maybe the best of the bunch, but it's still awful. It's still pretty bad. <laughs> this is. I wrote in my notes: D U M B macho bullshit. <laughs> Love in the first degree is a lyric. Yeah. Did they really go there? <laughs> oh, yes, he we, did. He went there. They continue Love in the to. First, I mean, that is as generic and as stale as it gets. I mean, how many? I, I think there's worse lyrics between the four. The only thing that's more stale than love in the first degree is when you rhyme desire with fire. <laughs> those are, those are the th- that was like that went into the fucking like cliche bin in like a hundred years ago what I about fucking, well with well uh, yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> i can tell i can tell so i mean you know the, i think that but as far as like a raunchy rock riff this is this is the raunchiest of the four and so for me it was the best that doesn't mean i like it no no and it's it's just uh <laughs> I, I mean, I would share those sentiments with Nowhere to Run. Out, out of the four, that's actually my favorite. In no way am I saying it's a good song like what you're saying with uh, Down on Your Knees. But I think the reason I gravitated toward this one a little bit more is they still miss the mark greatly. But it sounds like they were trying to reach that classic 70s sound. With Nowhere to Run, absolutely. Yeah, I agree they, with that, they, too. Really? Like, I well, do. With the acoustic mm-hmm. uh, rap-ins, the way the guitar riff actually plays. Now, take out the mixing and everything, like what you're saying, like with Unmasked. But, I, I don't know. I just feel like that one, to me, kind of hinges more on a classic sound than the other four do. Again, so we they just gra- segued right into Nowhere to Run here, right? Do I, well. I have nothing I good to we say. We just segued into Nowhere to Run. Because I have nothing good to say about Down on Your Knees either. I, yeah, I, it was, I already said it was forgettable to me. What do you think about the Nowhere to Run? I think Nowhere to Run, I, I'll agree with Alex in that it's the uh, the best out of the four. I like the way that it's ranged, and I think it could be it could have uh, gone... It could have stood up with anything off of uh, Paul's solo material. Eh, that's, that's going a little too oh, far on that one. Maybe it like sound-wise. I don't maybe, know about maybe not the song itself. You know that they spent some time with with it lyrically. Maybe and a stuff little like bit more that. time. Yeah, but you know aesthetically and uh, you know arrangement-wise and things like that, it, I would think it, I would stack it with you know say a uh, wouldn't you like to know me or something like oh, that. that. No, you're that you're, you're that <laughs> sound-wise. I'll, I'll defend the song, but I will sound-wise arrangement-wise. An episode where we're going to be like, this is going to be the fun era. This is, no, this is going to be the era where you get fired off this fucking show for sacrilege. 
<laughs> Russ is like, I didn't even like the Paul Stanley solo record but that much, but geez, don't compare this one to that. <laughs> but with the acustics and all that too, that's kind of where that's all worth. That's where I'm getting at. Just well, uh, Russ, sound what do dynamics you think of Partners that. in Crime? I think the not word, Partners in Crime, but Nowhere to Run. Nowhere to Run. Yeah, I think what he said earlier. This is montage music. In this song in particular, <laughs> this is the montage song from like. A forgotten fucking Rocky movie when he's training, you know, and he's and like that, all there's like in his mind as he's jogging down the fucking beach or whatever, and he's seeing like you know there's like all these flashbacks of fucking Clever Lang and Apollo Creed and the fucking Russian guy, and that it's chorus fucking will, look man, awful. That chorus will be in your head for awful. days though. Awful. <laughs> This is it's it's it, that's what this is. This is montage music. This is. isn't a cool kiss song. It isn't. This isn't even a cool song. This isn't even a good song. And this is where I get lost with like kiss fans that go, no, the runs fucking cool. And I'm like, no, it's fucking not. How can you say that? How can you have any fucking credibility in your taste when you take a mediocre piece of dog shit like this that gets smeared across the wall and been like, it's art. No, it's fucking terrible, man. Fine. It's dog shit. Right, Fine. And, and this record, this whole fucking concept, everything about this is insulting to me. I had this debate today with a friend of mine that's a Kiss fan, and I'm like, and I said, you know, I've got this in my notes. To me, these new songs are even more of a goddamned embarrassment than The Elder. And he's like, really? You really think these are worse than The Elder? Yes, <laughs> we're sitting here again. Uh, you know, these are fucking nowhere to run. The most of all, and I think the reason why I get so upset about this is because we have this treasure trove of great classic albums that Kiss have made that are so fucking good. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like it's almost like they came up with that shit effortlessly, and they're just so much superior to this. And it's not because they're like great grandiose whatever bullshit yeah it's because they're lo-fi fucking raunchy dirty ass rock and roll songs and they don't know how to do it anymore like, we, like they've lost it i think part of what's fueled you is we watched that uh, kobo footage of let me go rock and roll right before this yeah, where they well, were that, just like I mean, shit fire hot that, yeah but that's what i'm saying <laughs> it's like they're not even it's like i'm not even comparing this to their contemporaries of the time in 1982 when yeah. this is recorded i'm comparing this to themselves this is a failure to be Kiss. This is what it is. It's cobbled together bullshit to just hastily throw on a fucking throwaway record that's going to be sold in the foreign markets. Because they had to, not because, because they, they had necessarily to, not because wanted they to. wanted to. But even if they wanted to, obviously they don't have it in the tank to even fucking do it. Which is why they had to get outside songwriters. Exactly. <laughs> they have a and team of songwriters that like, come up with this. <laughs> and then the question is, would this have even been a good goddamn Brian Adams song? <laughs> No, no, not at all. <laughs> it's not a good goddamn song. Anyway, partners in crime. See, Jesus fucking. This was the worst. Christ. Everything you just said about um, nowhere to run. I say about partners in crime. It's, I think this is the worst this, thing. This is. A, I do too. Think about this. They recorded this twice because they thought it was <laughs> it would be better suited in a lower register. Oh my god! I don't know. I don't. Partners in Crime is still my absolute second, least favorite. A second pass doesn't improve on this god awful song. <laughs> Paul plays bass on it, and and honestly, all of these new songs are so unremarkable and so unmemorable that even after revisiting them last night to listen to them, I've already forgotten them again. 
Other not, than not, nowhere, not the one. No, except <laughs> hey, for nowhere to run. That chorus, that, that hey, chorus of nowhere to run, and I'm like, there ain't nowhere off. to run from that fucking chorus. <laughs> I know it. It's pissing me off. <laughs> it's not stuck in your head in a good way. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you know. It's like it could be like you know the soundtrack to a fucking GI Joe cartoon. <laughs> Seriously, that's the level it operates on. It's that's so what Paul bad. Stanley does. It's insulting as a Kiss fan that this is the best that they're going to come up with. You know, it's like this is like this is like, might as well just like scream "fuck you" for two and a half minutes and record that. <laughs> Kiss well, fans, then, fuck you. <laughs> part of it too is because like listen to this album. I can't wait for these future episodes. Oh my God. This is going to be nutty. <laughs> I think part of the problem, too, is I was listening to this and The Elder in full, and I think I'll take nowhere to run over a lot of The Elder, too, but that's just me. When you're when when the song is, is, is ambivalent about itself, and it seems to be they have been ambivalent about writing it, that leaves the impression that the band themselves are ambivalent about themselves. And how do you get, the, you know, Kiss seemed like they had that, that kind of... That, that that weird kind of aura about them in the 70s, that self-confidence that even if everyone else thought they were stupid, you know, they're, they themselves, they knew who they were and who their fans were. And like I said, it, I've said this in a previous episode, it felt very inclusive. Oh, yeah. It felt very, you know, exclusive in the way that it was like us. And it's like, oh, you don't get it? Fuck you. Yeah. And now it's like they're just saying... Fuck you don't you get to, it. Well, we don't either. We don't either. We don't know. <laughs> you know, and and then why can they ex- not expect their waning fan base to feel the exact same ambivalence? Who mm-hmm. cares anymore? No one does. If you're gonna put, if you're gonna foister shit like this out, and you can't sit there and scratch your head going, "Gee, I don't understand why no one liked it." <laughs> I, I just it blows my mind. And yes, this is this is worse than the elder because it is so ambivalent. I mean, at least with the elder, they had some sort of integrity working that they were trying to do something. They thought they, thought they, were, they were, doing. were doing something really good. They were putting their energy into it, and they believed in what they were doing. This feels no energy. There, there's no energy, and it doesn't feel like there's any belief in what they're doing. Well, it's kind of hard too when you have uh, Ace Frehley who's on his way out. You got Bill. Your manager is you know being super irresponsible with oh, yeah. what he's doing, and Jeans then. Basically, in the process of checking out, if not checked out, and then Paul's just kind of you know running the ship by himself, really at this point. And then you got Eric, the new guy that has no seniority, no right to say you know we should do this or anything else. He's just the he's the glorified yes man because that's what he's been hired to be. Yeah. Oh, this is a band that's very lost, but you know, again, the label's adamant about this. They're still um, making money through uh, that uh, that deal with Polygram, so they're just kind of you know playing to the beat of their drum at this point. Um, so some of these other tracks, I mean, when you when you include these four new songs, and then uh, it, you know one of them flips from one of the new tracks, and then goes into Cold Gin. I think it's such an odd and it's, transition, and it makes you realize. Again, just it just punctuates how bad that new song and it's is. Like, and partners in crime go straight into Detroit Rock City. Yeah, and, and <laughs> you know uh, th- th- now there's uh, there's some there's some uh, there's some uh, I guess some minor differences. I guess on these yeah, these aren't the really main... remixed from the original tracks. Uh, you mentioned something about 
I was made for love, and you was the only one I kind of noticed. You said notab- it jumps, notable edits. It does a jump cut in there? Yeah, it's not too noticeable. Uh, the beginning of it uh, is reduced down a little bit. They get straight into the riff a little faster than sitting on just the bass riff, and then coming out of um, it's like the, uh, the oh oh oh, and then the bam bam da 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 when it goes into the drum fill. Mm-hmm. It usually goes into a measure of like he yeah, hits like four toms. One, two, three, four. Digger, digger, digger. Yeah. It cuts it down to a one, two. Digger, 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 digger. Weird. Yeah. So just. Weird. I don't know that I've ever noticed that. I, I did listen to see if um, Detroit Rock City had the double platinum remix where mm-hmm. they sing the chorus over the uh, over that part in the guitar solo, but it doesn't. It it it's basically the the uh, Destroyer mix. Yeah. And then, like, uh, shout it out loud. They actually don't let it go all the way to the end to the wow. Oh, yeah. Bam. Well, they, they just do, they do a fade yeah, out. Well, there was I think when they were fade out on the hmm, on destroyer, destroyer, they go all the way out to the the scream and the all hard right, stop. I'm, I'm forfeiting my nerd card. <laughs> Get on my level, Russ. <laughs> um, that's mixed different too. So but that's like nitpicky shit. Yeah, there's little things here, but by and large, but the thing that uh, uh, what is curious is they've included Escape from the Island on this. The yes. only all track the songs, from the Elder, an instrumental track from the Elder. Yeah, <laughs> now that wasn't a single. Nope. Why the fuck would they do that? Now, I do have to make mention, the original 82 European edition has Legend of Night, Down on Your Knees, Cold Gin, Love Gun, Shout It Out Loud, Sure Know Something, then Nowhere to Run, Partners of Crime, Detroit Rock City, God of Thunder, Made for Loving You, Live Rock and Roll All Night. So the original 82 European edition did not have... um, uh, Escape from the Island. But then the 82 Australian version included Talk to Me. Right. Well, which was interesting. I, I want to know who compiled this. Mm-hmm. And, and then the and 82. Who compiled it for, you know, and what was the rationale that they looked at each foreign market and went, okay, they're going to get this. They're going to get this. Because, see- because there is another variation. So the, uh, so the 82 European was the most stripped down. 82 Australian included Talk to Me. 82 Japanese included Escape from the Island and Shandy. Hmm. So Japanese got Austra- uh, got the Shandy and uh, Escape from the Island, which what? is why, essentially what why our... Why would we punish the Japanese with that? <laughs> why did they ever do that? <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> so this album is called odd. Killers, and you know what? <laughs> <laughs> There's an Iron Maiden album of the same name that's, you know... Wait, hey, it's the one without Bruce Dickinson, so you might like it, Russ. Oh, no, I, I like I like Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, I, he had I, to snap I, out of it for a second. I, I just, I'm just, I'm still just dumbfounded that this album even exists. Um, it, it peaks as high as number six in Norway, yeah, and number fourteen in Australia, mm-hmm. but it barely makes a dent in any other territory it's released. So it seems like this is just a pointless exercise. Now, I also wonder if it was just to uh, fulfill contract obligations. That's what also, I'm thinking. well, no, the band. They, they, this wasn't. I don't think it was part of their. I mean, it was a polygram request, but it was, was a it a contractual? Yeah. I think was they a were just trying to. I think they were just trying to recoup losses off of the elder. Yeah, maybe. I don't maybe. know. Um, meanwhile, 
in june ace formally quits the band mm-hmm. the yeah. uh the legend has it that uh ace went all the way i mean paul went all the way out to ace's house picked him up took him to i'm the sure mall, he did i don't doubt that he did and that. basically just kind of like was like hey man don't don't leave yeah. like we're, we're at a, like a really crucial time you right. know don't you know do what that this. crucial time is this is the they they tell that story they like to go we tried to keep him in the band we mm-hmm. we love Ace. oh yeah mm-hmm. he's our buddy but no that's not why they wanted Ace to stay in the band. The new deal with Polygram stipulated that Kiss was Gene, Paul, and Ace. And sort of like a reverse of that key man clause that they had when Neil Bogart left, Polygram has sort of a similar thing. If any one of those three guys leave, that opens up to them renegotiating that deal. Mm-hmm. Now, they just, you know, they negotiated this, you know, astounding deal uh, not two years prior a year prior yeah and failed to deliver and if ace leaves now they're going to lose that sweet deal Mm -hmm. so they don't want ace to leave because they're going to lose big time with that yeah it's going to fuck them um and and even though this is not entirely related um it's just still a fun antidote that I thought about. It's interesting that this is going to be the first, but not last time, Kiss has been part of a contract that says at least three original members need to be a part of the band. Yeah. Do what now? Because the uh, around the time of the Symphony and the Kiss Aerosmith tour, uh-huh. that was one of the clauses. Oh, uh, they, yeah. Peter would did not want to be part of it, and they were ready to put Eric back on drums and keep Tommy on guitar. Oh. Well, part of the stipulations so for that tour is they had to guys. have three original members. So, well, again, that's, that same kind of contract comes back because, to bite them in the ass later. But, see, that's the problem or maybe the benefit of having such an identifiable, cohesive kind of unique thing. Thing, that it's not it's not even to this day this is the thing that you know the uber kiss nerds will understand it's not the demon the star child the spaceman the cat man it's gene paul ace and peter yes and that's essential and whether or not those guys like each other and everything it's like almost irrelevant to the point i mean if they don't like each other that much fucking stop man yeah. just fucking stop and, and in all reality this would be Quit the time to, to stop. undermine and undercut each other which they do constantly and the problem is is they, again it, up to this point kiss is still no one knows about this stuff they're very you know they play everything very close to their best mm-hmm. you know and they will continue to do so for the next 10 years even after the mystique is long gone and really they still do to a certain degree and it's like dude you know you don't get to write fucking tell all about books and then try to act <laughs> like you've still got some mystique that's not how this works this no. isn't how it works but back then the mystique still exists to a certain degree and no one knows that Ace is leaving the band because they're doing everything in their power to make people believe that he's still in the band and this mm-hmm. will continue for another close to full year. Well, through the through the end of this year. Yeah, yeah. through the uh, Creatures cycle, in fact. Because Killers basically comes out really fast before Creatures, which is why I feel like in this episode we'll probably wind up going over the, uh, the Ace Fraley replacement period. That way, by the time we get to Creatures, we can kind of discuss what they've decided to do with all these guitarists and then the uh, the tour after the fact. Yeah, but this all ha- it's, it's almost like the 70s all over again. Shit's starting to happen really fast again. Because uh, Ace well, doesn't want to be in the band anymore and uh, he works out a deal, deal with Bill to where he doesn't have to appear at any live shows 
but make public appearances. Well, that's the, 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 or is yeah, yeah, that gets a little that's, there. That's, that's a little into creatures. Okay. That's a little, we're a little ahead of ourselves here. Uh, let's 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 stop for a minute and kind of take a micro microphone a microphone <laughs> microscopic look. We're gonna turn the microphone over. A microscope on the polygram thing, which I'm probably going to get a lot of this wrong because I'm not. I'm not a smart man, <laughs> but uh, from the stuff I'm gathering, let's a little bit of background. Polygram is really part of something called phonogram. I'm going to just keep calling it polygram. I, know I think that the two me. are a little bit interchangeable, yeah. but um, essentially, I think what phonogram did was um, it um, started buying out uh, labels at some point in the uh, early '70s. They were buying these labels that had kind of I guess stopped having commercial value, so they're buying, you know, bargain basement prices. They're buying up old labels like Mercury and Decca and Verve, and kind of, you know, shaking them out and, uh, you know, rebranding them in a sense. And buying all those catalogs and getting the catalogs and 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 um, and part of this as they're buying stuff. They acquire Casablanca. Um, you can't understate the fact that Casablanca was an indie label. Um, they obviously, you know, we've talked about how they were a startup subsidized by Warner Brothers, and their the plan being they would eventually be enveloped into the Warner under the Warner umbrella. So, in a sense, they were built to fail. Fail meaning they were built to go, you know, get it started, get it going, and then to a certain point, then we'll just buy you back out and it becomes a subsidiary. Mm-hmm. Well, that obviously fell apart straight away. We've talked about that in early episodes. Yeah. Uh, and at some point, Casablanca tried to renegotiate or to negotiate a similar deal with ABC Records, and that didn't happen. So, they come to a deal finally with Polygram. And Polygram took a 50% stake in Casablanca in 1977. Um, Like I said, they also acquired MGM, RSO. The RSO deal was probably considered pretty good at the time because RSO had the Bee Gees who were like the kings of the disco thing. Right. And they saw their market share rise from 5% to 20%, a huge jump. Um. And for a while, they are the largest record company in the entire world. Um, but they start experiencing the blowbacks from disco. First, the failure of RSO. Um, then the, um, with the, especially, the, you know, the Sgt. Pepper movie, movie. soundtrack. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a big, that was a big uh, loss. And then you couple that with Casablanca's failure you know with the disco mm-hmm. thing that caused a big backlash um polygram forces a buyout of casablanca and re, you know the only acts of any value at that point is donna summer and kiss donna summer's like peace out i'm yep. out see ya and she takes off her did she do like just one more single and then that was it or something I, like uh, that something uh but of course kiss has the deal with casablanca and or they renegotiate the deal with Casablanca, and that is done by Howard Marks. And I think we've talked about that before. The deal was for, I've got, in my notes, $15 million with a $2 million advance on each new album and a royalty rate of $1.20 per unit, which was high for the time. Um, 
And, of course, the deal defines Kiss as Ace, Gene, and Paul because Peter had left the group. Mm-hmm. Now, part of his deal with him leaving was they allowed him to retain a share in the band's income, which I guess, for lack of a better definition, would be almost like a severance package. Yeah, right. But he gets, you know, I th- he retains... You know, for everything they're doing thereafter, he gets money off of it. But basically, in like modern talk, he almost just has stock in the company. Yeah, but I don't know to what degree. I thought he, you know, I initially had read that as he retained a full, you know, quarter share, or not quarter, but whatever it was, twenty percent share. Because I guess mm-hmm. I don't know, uh, but it was still a, a, a sweet deal. You know, for lack of a better term, a golden a golden parachute for him. Yeah, and it was basically here just will you please go away (laughs) which is terrible but it's the truth of it um i'm kind of skipping over stuff here uh i'm trying not to get myself lost uh let's see so you know they they're able to renegotiate the deal with polygram because neil bogart left casablanca that was their key man clause right their existing contract then became void and that's what allowed them to renegotiate mm-hmm. and this is important because now that they've renegotiated this sweet deal but they've got to maintain three original members this is going I'm to be out, a, this is going to be a problem now because <laughs> um, almost like a cat to a can opener as soon as that happens and that's why mm-hmm. all of the everything they're going to do now is going to be like trying to keep this shit secret yeah because it's like they can't find out. We'll lose our money. Yeah. You know, so that's why, you know, Ace is going to be on the cover of both the Killers comp and Creatures of the Night. And, you know, they don't have any uh, good fortune with the Elder, so they have no leg to stand on whatsoever. Um, Polygram's taking a loss that is reported to be an estimated $220 million between, I think, 1979 and 1984, according to what I've got. That just makes me lightheaded. And and a lot of that had to do with the returned records. You know, we talked about them shipping platinum and getting returned gold. I mean, they were awash in returns, and not just KISS returns. There was, you know, disco, too. But Mm -hmm. the remedy for that, which was standard practice, was... uh, selling these records at a cost reduction to discount retailers yep you know the cutouts you get that's why you find so many kiss albums that have the little dog ear cutout on the corner that was just a standard practice um but hey it's at least a way to guarantee that you've got an original copy (laughs) (laughs) right and an estimated 1.4 million kiss records are sold at discount however Kiss had a contractual provision in this contract that they 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 got, and that ele- that said they only allowed that that practice that the, 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 for the discounting with their written express consent, okay. which Polygram did not do. Oh, because fuck these guys. Yeah, <laughs> we're getting fucked here. Yeah, fuck them right back in their butthole. <laughs> <laughs> Again, no leg to stand on. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that was the attitude. The problem is, is it was illegal. And since they had not given, Kiss had not given consent for this, Polygram essentially would owe the group for the loss. Well, they don't (laughs) want to pay them. So, you know, they tried to go for settlements. No, 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 no. You know, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. I'm sure. 
but spoken in yeah no in, fuck you buddy no fuck you buddy yeah, <laughs> but spoken in corporate with very polite terms so i don't remember this you man, may politely uh, suck my balls so kiss sue polygram and they sue them they're so you know here we are fresh into their sweet record deal they're losing a member and they're going don't tell nobody and then on top of that they're going to sue the record company they're going to sue their own record company no one ever wins these things no, no one this gets, I mean, this is like a time-honored thing. It's like, I can't think of anyone that sued their record company and won other than maybe Tom Schultz from Boston in 1986 or whatever it was. It's like no one ever wins these things. But KISS have a compelling case because mm-hmm. it's in their contract. They are in the right. They have every, they they, they can't lose. It's a polygram law, or lied to them. And they'd sue for $6.7 million plus punitive damages. Now, this is a good thing for them because it will serve as a life raft for the band after this string of failures coming off of, you know, the the the, the Dynasty Tour cost overrun, the Unmasked Tour cost overrun, and the failure of Unmasked on, yeah. on, on the U.S. market, and the, the just failure the complete of, bomb of the, of the elder. elder. They need this money because... Oh, yeah. Their money, their income is substantially dried and, up. And even with the elder, they had a triple whammy because it was a flopped album. They didn't tour, and there was no merchandise. And it was their most expensive album to make. So that was so a yeah, it's quadruple. Just, there's no. They need this, and so the risk is losing their lucrative deal with their label. And so it's a huge gamble. Um. The trial happens at the end of 1982, in December of 82, and the band does win. Yeah. Justice prevails. <laughs> Justice prevails. <laughs> they have a, uh, they have a, uh, I believe they have a jury trial, which is unusual. I don't understand that. I'm not a legal expert, so I, it just seems like this would have been something that would have been, you know, done yeah. with a... Over with, with, record with a, business. With a judge, yeah. But the, <laughs> they get awarded... Uh, they, you know, they've they've had they've sued for six point seven million dollars plus punitive damages. Mm-hmm. The jury determines what they feel is fair based on what they think would be the accumulative accumulative royalty rate of the discounted records. And Kiss wins five hundred and twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> Ouch! Yikes! And what makes this even more bitter is that they rejected a last-minute settlement for a million dollars from Polygram. God damn it. Take the million dollars, and we'll just call it even. Oh. No. And now they don't even... They just saved Polygram virtually a half million dollars. And you know what's funny is... Anytime you hear about the story, it's quickly glossed over. They don't ever talk about the no, lies. No, talk about exactly. it. Exactly. Like, even in that most recent history documentary thing that A&E did, uh, they even mentioned, they're like, and we sued our record company, and we won. <laughs> and it's just like, they, they frame it like yeah, that. And we won. Next. Yeah. yeah. Half, Wait, half, half, how much did you win? We won. <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm Gene Simmons. <laughs> Of kiss. <laughs> I'm sure those lawyers they hired weren't cheap either. No, after fees and expenses, including a percentage to bill a coin, <laughs> <laughs> oh he God. was their manager. And he did get a percentage of this deal. 
Nobody made anything. No. So who it's, really won here? Uh, McDonald's for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and moreover, with Ace leaving, you know, this develops a uh, a breach of contract. So, and isn't this around the same time period too that uh, they decide to let go of Bill of Coin, like right before Creatures? Yeah, this is all of this is happening simultaneously, and mm-hmm. now Kiss are very much on the hook. Yeah, and they're too broke to break up, and they're too broke. Here's what I wrote: They're too broke to break up, and too broke up to break as they once were. Damn, poetic, Russ. I like it. <laughs> I like it, That's, though. It's great. But, um, I mean, and I think, and this is my own personal opinion, is this is where all the gears grind to a halt, and they realize this is over, it's time to break up and cut our losses and go, but we can't because the losses are too great, and we need to keep going now because we're desperate. Now, would this also this maybe be the same have. kind of mindset as to when Paul was saying it would have been more expensive to not tour? Remember back in the well, dynasty here thing? It, yeah, here it's more expensive to not break up. Yeah. Or it's less expensive. Well, it, I mean, it's less expensive to not break up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like here they have to soldier on as a shadow of their own former glory. You know, these guys were once kings, and now they're limping into the 80s under the heel of new masters. Mm-hmm. And everything they will do now for the next 10 years, literally, are going to be just efforts to keep surviving and yeah. people go oh they sold a million copies of this that and the other record and i'm like it's in an era when most bands were selling just on average three and four million copies and that was you know yeah the music th- industry sell, was booming they were just in the 80s struggling to sell a million copies and that just keeps them going from one record to the next it's like you know this isn't this is a matter Catching of just enough scraps just enough of those drops of water to and keep so going i think they would have probably been better off to just have stopped here but they can't they really literally cannot stop and especially now with well if they had stopped we wouldn't have gotten keep me coming yeah <laughs> <laughs> well with ace leaving that produces a new quandary as to what they need to do to replace ace all the while also not having a manager because even just a quick footnote on that one that was more there's not too, like i've even heard out of like bob's mouth like you know they're like split he even like kind of says it very mellow dramatically like it wasn't like that big of a thing even paul's recount is like they they call up bill and they're like hey we we need to have a meeting and yeah. he's like yeah yeah i figured <laughs> and that they just kind of when all does that up. happen do y'all have that because i meant to get that written down and i i, 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 don't, I don't have the exact because i thought that was was that that was the 82 too right uh-huh. it, it happened basically on the heels of the elder like mm. I, I honestly i think it happened right before they started well, doing the yeah. killers thing because we See, talked I, about how uh, ace was fucked up throughout this whole thing bill was even more fucked up well or that, just as i mean that's you know that's a, ma- a measure of how much hearsay and what you know i'm sure that's true but i'm not gonna i mean it seems like to me he was still a creative i mean to me that's that's something else we could talk about probably at length at another time but i'm just you know bill of coin style of managing versus mm-hmm. uh doc mcgee style of managing I doc, think cross doc that in the mcgee 90s. is not a creative manager in my mind i don't see any of the creativity that bill of coin brought to the table i think they lost way the, the, the you cannot measure the loss they had with losing bill of coin letting yeah. bill of coin go but they blamed him for a lot of stuff that really mm-hmm. wasn't his fault 
they had business managers. He was not their business manager. They brought in Glickman Marks to cover that. You know, they had they had C.K. Lent as their as their uh, touring accountant. They had they had guys that were doing. You know, they had bean counters, right? Yeah. And the bean counters would be going, "You're losing money," and they're going. We don't care. Yeah, <laughs> we must exactly. Be kiss. You're right. You're and right. then when Kiss couldn't be Kiss anymore, it was like, "This is your fault, Bill. <laughs> this is your fault." What, what? How the fuck is it my fault? <laughs> sure, I've been taking a big cut of your money this entire time, and it's been going straight up my nose. But whatever. <laughs> but that doesn't matter. It, it's it's still. I mean, there's so much that he could bring to the table. But at any rate, yeah. we, we got we got the we got bigger fish to fry here in a way that we got <laughs> yeah. we got this. Ace problem. Yeah. Ace is gone. Come on, Ace. Don't leave, man. I took it to the mall, man. No, we'll go to the mall, man. We'll go to the food court. Man. You want an orange Julius? Yeah. <laughs> Come on, dude. Can you put some vodka in it? No, no. See, that's that's the problem we're having here, yeah, bud. Is, <laughs> we think it's clouding your judgment because you want to quit. <laughs> so they Not because tr- of everything else that's going on. It's just don't quit. <laughs> so they've got to try out people. And, you know, Bob Kulik is not in the running. There's some names that have been floated that aren't. Now, now do we know the official reason why Bob was never asked? Uh, I think because he had no hair. I kept hearing that, too. But I'm like, assuming. Well, they had a very clear idea of what they wanted. Yeah. They wanted someone that was going to be roughly the same height as them. They wanted someone that was six foot tall. Mm-hmm. They wanted someone that was at least 20 years old. These are like two important things yeah and i think they wanted someone that was going to be a modern guitar player mm-hmm. you know i'm well, sure I mean, it feels they like wanted, bob would fit that well except for the hair part well yeah i'm talking about like the modern guitar style. oh i don't know so i've got a list of like guys yes, yes. yes. i've got it alphabetized though it was all alphabetized, oh. everything. alphabetized by last name or first name uh, by their last name because oh. <laughs> <laughs> we're formal like that um <laughs> names that uh people that Tried out. out for the coveted position. And I, you know, I'm not sure of timeline on this because the way I understand it, they had essentially an East Coast and West Coast thing going on. They had uh, guys came into uh, SIR Studios in New York City to try out. And then when they were on the West Coast, they had guys that flew in and I think came to the studio mm-hmm. and recorded. Yep. And that's why I say a little bit of this overlaps, but it's also important to point out through all of this they never find a guitarist and they're also yeah. recording creatures of the night as this goes at, on at the same time yeah which we'll go into in the next episode mm-hmm. but for now let's so you'll just hear talk something about, so when they listen to the next episode they'll hear familiar names pop yeah, up yeah because this you know truly no time to turn uh some of the names that have, have popped up in my research uh doug aldrich later of dio and white snake mm-hmm. yeah um he was only 17 and was perhaps considered too young maybe um great player though michael angelo badio oh that's the guy that uh <laughs> does nitro yeah that's the guy that uh plays that can shred with both hands if you have if you uh, watch videos of him he has uh, a double neck guitar that's yeah. shaped like yeah. a, guess a, how, a v I, yeah i don't, I <laughs> if, don't get it no, i was gonna say guess how many girlfriends he had in high school <laughs> <laughs> to have that amount of time on his hands <laughs> so he was recommended by mike varney of shrapnel records 
Oh, okay. I'm, I'm now. I'm curious about this because it, it seems like Varney uh, recommended a couple of people. Shrapnel Records was uh, like the Shredder uh, record label. They put they out. Were the, they were doing the early kind of what I guess would be the guitar American, instrumental. Well, they were doing. Didn't they do? Man, I'm thinking of Metal Blade. I don't. I don't fucking. Uh, Shrapnel know. put out like Joe Satriani and okay. Steve Vai and folks like that. Well. So that makes sense because then they have the finger on the pulse of the hotshot guitar players. And they were yeah. founded in 1980. Um, so this guy, Michelangelo Badio. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if I'm saying that right. I think that's right. Anyway, he was just called Michelangelo, I think, for a minute, right? When he just because tried to sell himself super because that's 80s like fucking thing. guitar virtuoso <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> so he, he's, his story is he flew in and recalls playing uh, Calling Dr. Love and taking over vocals. <laughs> Oh, getting, that was mistake and, number one. And getting the words wrong and making everyone laugh. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but I mean, I think it was. It, it, he tells it like it was. It was all in good spirits. You know, yeah, kind of, but like, but imagine though, you're Gene, and some hotshot guitar player comes and starts singing your song, and then messes up the lyrics <laughs> on purpose. <laughs> and he feels like he was because he, he was only eighteen. And he felt like it. It wasn't his age though, as much as he that he came across too much like a starstruck fan. He he was guiltily uh. he guiltily and readily accepts. He's like, dude, I was totally like, fuck yeah. <laughs> you know? But I suspect it was largely the age. Yeah, because um, they're all in their mid-20s by this point. There was a band called TKO that was, I guess, popular in Northeast area. I can remember seeing their logo. I don't think I've ever heard them. I haven't either. And they might have been on Metal Blade. I don't know. Maybe they were on Shopping. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but they had a guitar player named Adam Brenner, and he would change his name to Adam Bomb. <laughs> And he was the guy that says that he was told that they wanted someone at least 20 and at least six feet tall. And he was neither. He was 17. And what's interesting is here, a lot of these guys are teenagers. I don't know where they're digging up these kids from and why they're trying them out. But um, Robin Crosby allegedly from rats tried out. It's not verified, but it's not implausible. Um, Steve Ferris famously uh, auditioned in the studio as they were recording and was mm-hmm. asked to lay down a lead on a track, and he did two passes. The second one, he did this little trick with a whammy bar and a volume pedal, and he did um, that second take is what they kept as the lead guitar track on the title track of Creatures of the Night. Yep. But there you he go. didn't get the job. <laughs> and he feels he didn't get the job because he couldn't sing. Interesting. That was also part of the deal. They wanted someone that could sing because they always did the harmony thing. Yeah, that, that's right. part of the Kiss thing. So I was gonna say, sure, sure, shit went because they wanted them to like sing songs because Bruce didn't get a song until the damn uh, Carnivals of Souls. Allegedly, Roger Fisher of Heart was asked and turned down the offer, or asked to audition and turned it down. Yeah. So, you know, so there were people that might have been asked to be like, hey, you want to try out for Kiss? Fuck no. I was going to say, they got all these young guns wanting to because folks their age are like. They're young and hungry and they're like, fuck yeah. You know, but a guy like him who's been in heart, he's like, like, fuck no. (laughs) Of course, whatever happened to him after that? Uh, I'm too, I don't care to Google and I doubt either of our listeners would. (laughs) Uh, Robin Ford. Who played on Creature of the Night. I think he was the guy that plays on I Still Love You. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he didn't audition, nor was he interested. He just came in and did the session work. Okay. Um, a guy named Steve Irons of a band called Cities 
and he was recommended by Jack Starr of Virgin Steel, who the band went to see. Hold up. So many 80s names I know. there. <laughs> they, went to go see, they went to go see Jack Starr. I think they were curious about trying him out, but he never auditioned, and he recommended this kid. And, uh, again, another 17-year-old, and why they're pulling these teenagers, I don't fucking know. But he had the qualities they wanted. They said he apparently he was tall, easygoing, and evidently, if the story is to believe, he was offered the gig. But it went through his manager because he was under management with his band Cities, mm-hmm. and his manager turned it down. Where he tried to actually have Kiss buy out, buy him out, oh, okay. buy his management contract out. He tried to make money off the deal, and they backed off from that real hard and were like, "No, thanks, but no thanks." Damn. And he didn't find out about it until after the fact, and they didn't find out about it until after the fact. Oh, that poor bastard. Well, they tried to help him out apparently, but in the aftermath, it just didn't pan out. So I don't know. I guess they, you know, Gene tried to be. I'm Gene Simmons <laughs> from Kiss. From Kiss. <laughs> Do you want a dollar? <laughs> uh, a guy that had been working with John Beauvoir from. I think I'm saying that from the Plasmatics. You are, he was the right. bass player from the ba- Plasmatics. He was playing with a guy named Tommy Lafferty, and um, he said he received a series of cryptic phone calls and eventually figured out. Oh, this is for Kiss. <laughs> it especially helped when someone called and went, Tom, <laughs> this is Gene Simmons. Of Kiss. Of, of Kiss. Kiss. <laughs> Am I going to try out for Kiss? I cannot confirm or deny that at this point. <laughs> well, how would you like to buy? <laughs> he tells a story about auditioning with them and felt it went really well. And that same night, uh, Van Halen was playing at Madison Square Garden and they invited him to come and hang and so you know it kind of looked promising I guess for a minute and then for whatever reason they decided no uh, part of this cattle call uh, Bob Kulick's little brother Bruce Kulick that's right yep, auditions which is but, interesting because he doesn't get it mm-mm. and do you, I've heard one reason why and, is, and Bruce even kind of like offhand mentioned it. Kinda, I can't tell if he was mainly joking about it or like he was being serious. They wanted him to shave. He had like this big ass mustache. They wanted him to shave the mustache and he said no. Uh, well, yeah, they would have had him shave the mustache. Mm-hmm. But I would suspect that, it, again, it probably went into a thing that uh, they were looking for someone that could do vocals. Yeah, maybe. I don't know, though. Uh, but no, he, he always joked. He's like, I, I had a big old mustache, and they want me to shave, and I just, I just didn't want to do it. <laughs> uh, I think they're, uh, they were seriously looking at Punky Meadows of Angel. Former label mate. And, um, you know, it was, that was under the advice of Barry Levine, the photographer. Uh, he went to audition, played side one of a live and then they jammed on communication breakdown and we're like, well, let's talk some business. And they started talking business and he offhandedly mentions that he's still working with Greg Jafria, who was the keyboard player in Angel. And they were shopping a deal, which I think he felt was being conversational, but the band took it as a refusal. Hmm. And got up and walked out and they were like, you know, and then I guess somebody well, came back also, and said what the fuck did you do to blow that and he's just like nothing i don't you know he didn't realize he just misspoke well it's because they're also wanting to find i do know one other little wrinkle that they had you may have mentioned it once um which is they wanted to find someone unknown 
Well, yeah. so if they were shopping around, possibly, but I think, I mean, at this point, I don't think, I don't know. I mean, I just, I don't know. Again, yeah. this, these stories could be all apocryphal. You know? Oh, absolutely. I don't know it's, it's like going you know, through the many vocalists that yeah. uh, when what auditioned for the Misfits in the nineties. Yeah, it's like I you know, know, everyone in your brother supposedly has a demo tape of them jamming with Jerry and Doyle. <laughs> I, I, but I know someone that legit does. I know. I know. That's part of the reason I said. Um, Michael Ray, who would end up in the Wendy Williams band, uh, Al Romano, who was a kid, a hotshot guitar player in the New York City area. Uh, uh, they, I think he felt like he came across as a little too cocky. He comes in and asks, he's 17, and he goes, hey, I want to see those photo albums with the groupies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Gene's like, we can talk photo albums another time. Yeah. <laughs> but he claims his audition was videotaped. Hmm. Which is curious. wonder how many others could have possibly been. Uh, a guy named Roger Romeo from a band called Legs Diamond. And I used to see their name all the fucking time. Legs Diamond. I know my brother saw them down in Biloxi, Mississippi in 1985 or four. All right. Um, allegedly, Kiss was gonna had considered covering a Leg Legs Diamond song. I think Legs Diamond goes back to That's like just such a weird name. Early seventies. Oh, it's a very much a American glitter glam. Yeah, early glam. You know, but apparently he didn't realize he was uh, in an audition. He didn't know their material and just jammed. And he feels like that probably derailed his chances because he wasn't familiar with their thing. But then again, who knows? You know. Yeah. Uh, Richie Sambora claims to have auditioned. In his story, he he was given the job only to turn it down because he didn't feel they were bluesy enough. Yeah, Paul Stanley talks about that. In <laughs> yeah, his book. he's got a great quote in his book about uh, Richie didn't fly out to California just because he liked airline flute. Uh, airline <laughs> he goes, and my Bon Jovi records aren't necessarily filed next to my Howling Wolf records. <laughs> so petty, Which, I love it. Yeah, but it, you know what? In this time, it's it's justified. Yes. Yeah. What the fuck, dude? <laughs> they were bluesy enough. You're playing goddamn Bon Jovi. <laughs> oh, Wanted Dead or Alive is a fucking blues classic. Kiss my ass. You fucking New Jersey fucking redneck yeah. wannabe. Fuck you. Fuck that band. Fuck that guy. Fuck his fucking shitty fucking guitar playing. He's not even in fucking Bon Jovi anymore. <laughs> Fuck that too. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking Rich Zambora. Oh, let's just bow down and kiss your fucking New Jersey ass. Your bluesy New Jersey ass. The motherfucker. I love it. The statements are of Russell Ward. Yeah. And do not you necessarily <laughs> represent the views. And, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> no, I'm back at fuck it. Yeah, fuck it. <laughs> Everything said doing? on this show is backed by the Something Good Network, goddammit. Um... The guy whose name I'm going to butcher here, his name was Spencer Sircombe or Sircombe. Mm, that you're doing who, as best as I could. <laughs> I actually was, have not heard this name. He was working for BC Rich. I think he was the go-between when Paul started using BC Rich guitars. Mm-hmm. And so I guess they found out you know, that way, whatever. Because this was the time when he had yep. that leopard print yeah, BC Rich guitar. I, I remember that now. So uh, he, you know, he had a good rapport with Paul, but for some reason he didn't feel like Gene liked him, and he thinks that's probably what derailed him. And you always hear those sort of stories where it's like Gene really liked me, but Paul didn't, and then others like Paul liked me, but Gene well, just that makes like, sense. Side-eye, you know, side-eyed you me. You never know. 
Then you've got, of course, the legendary Eddie Van Halen story, mm-hmm. which right. I don't believe at all. You I don't, think I, no. even though both Paul and Gene claim that they had talked with Eddie Van Halen. Or Paul says he doesn't know anything about Eddie Van Halen saying he was interested in playing with them. Paul, in his book, from if I'm recalling correctly, um, was talking with Eddie Van Halen about uh, him venting about you know mm-hmm. uh, he was he might have been venting about this Van Halen situation, Van Halen. yeah. But I mean, and and some of that rings true because uh, you know uh, I think it's pretty well established that Eddie Van Halen was never a very happy guy. Yeah, and, and and I don't, for whatever reason he was, you know, a tormented soul. I don't know. Uh, the Noel Monk wrote his book, you know, when he kind of outlines it, not not in a in a pan, or a pandering way or a, mm-hmm. you know, a mean spirited way. I mean, it seems like to me Eddie Van Halen probably had some depression issues of some sort or whatever, and we know he was a notorious alcoholic, and people with. Sometimes that goes issues, hand in that hand. Goes hand, yeah. in hand, and as does the creativity that goes with it. Yeah, you know. But I still think this is largely Gene Simmons hyperbole, or Gene just misunderstood what the, he read. The room he was wrong. he was probably just offhand. Even if he mentioned it, going, "Hey, I'll just play with you guys." It could have been just a shooting from the mm-hmm. hip, you know, bullshitting with yeah. the guys kind of thing. Hey, screw it, like, I'll just play like, with you guys. Like, I'll play in kills. Yeah. You know, but like if it as if they were going to go, okay. And you'd be like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I was just kidding, guys. Yeah. I, didn't mean it. I wasn't serious when I said yeah, that. Yeah, it's like hanging out at a band practice and just being like, fuck it, I'll play bass. And they're like, all right, cool. Well, band practices are on this day. And this like, wait, hold no, up, hold, hold up. up. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I'd argue at that point, Eddie Van Halen was probably more famous than uh, Paul and Gene at that point. And then there was a guy named John Verner. And this is an interesting story because uh, apparently... He was a very serious contender. Uh, he played in a band with a guy that had been Ace's guitar tech, I guess. And so he's not certain, but he thinks that this is what's interesting. He thinks that Ace himself recommended this guy. Hmm. Like, you should check out this guy. And they flew him from New York to California. Yeah. And... um he had an audition and they liked him and they liked him so much they said we want you to stay here mm-hmm. for another three weeks and i guess they might have still been in the process of auditioning other guys but i think you know but as soon as those three weeks were up that very last day you can go home now wow Damn. so that's interesting I know what, what I, again, we'll probably never have answers to it, but it's like, what, what changed the thought process on it so hard? Well, what, it, none of this makes a whole lot of sense because it seems like to me that, you know, you had a, a pretty good pool of talent here to draw from. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, again, and it kind of jives with what Bob Kulik said about them not knowing what they wanted, but yeah. knowing what they didn't want. And sometimes and, that's easier than knowing what you want is knowing what you don't want. And they were asking, uh, they were asking a lot of these guys about, you know, are you willing to dye your hair black and all that stuff? And, you know, some guys were and some guys weren't. So I'm sure that discounted guys and just general attitude. I mean, a lot of these kids, have a lot of them that, from what I understand, all claim that well, we probably felt we were a little too cocky, you know. So, you know, they were looking for someone that was laid back. But really what they, I think they were looking for was someone that was tractable. Somebody that was going to be like, yes, sir. Right. You know, do this. Okay. A yes, man. Do, yeah. Do this. Okay. And 
Meanwhile, they are have been working with uh, Vincent Cusano. Yep. Yep, the last on the list. <laughs> well, nice he's double, never, double he doesn't B. ever really audition. He's there helping write. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and uh, I guess he's helping some in the studio, which we'll talk about in the next episode. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in the meantime, these are some gigantic, enormous changes they're going through. They've, they're losing their manager or they're firing their manager. They're losing their guitar player, which puts them on the brink of losing their recording contract, mm-hmm. quite literally. Or at the very least, they're going to have to renegotiate it at Again. a much lower rate. But they'll be lucky, you know, they'll be lucky to keep it is probably their attitude, because yep. why would Polygram want to keep them at this point? Um, you know, they're kind of in a desperate desperation mode here. So, you know, it, it's just I mean, this is like. And you know what? I think it oddly shows through in the songwriting in the next record. Uh, yeah. I think so, but I mean, uh, you know, it's interesting to consider that all of this has happened in a three-year period between 1979, where they're at the the height of their powers, and now they're they, I mean, you know, no one cares if they were to fucking take their makeup off, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, dun, dun, dun. and they just and they just got the makeup trademarked. And actually, they started getting a lot of questions around this time period. Would you ever consider doing shows without makeup? Well, they always gotten that question, but a lot more now. Yeah, and and you know, but that's that's such an important calling card that they've got, you know. And I, you know, I know that they're going to consider dropping it during this process as well. We'll talk about that in the next episode. Yeah, but it, you know, they've they're not kiss anymore. It's the the lowercase ISS. They have really, you know, it's just now they're going to struggle and they're going to, they're going to scratch and claw for everything that they've got, you know, and they're kind of back to where they were 10 years prior. Only now they're jaded. They've, they've been, you know, fat and content, you know, that, that fire and that hunger that they had before they were successful is not the same fire and hunger they're going to have to try to reclaim their past glory. Yep. And absolutely. so everything they do now is informed by a cynicism, you know, and it's, and it's not a, that, that kind of cynicism is not a good thing. The cynicism that they were always accused of in the past really didn't exist because they were committed to, to presenting something that, you know, they 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 were committed to to a quality to what they were doing. Yeah, the cynicism now is going to start bubbling forth because, you know, as I said in the previous episode, they in all all manners of their all in, incarnations of their previous past or whatever the from from album to album as their even as their costumes changed and the presentation changed and the staging changed. It was what they wanted to do, and the fans followed them. Yep. Yeah. Now they're looking and second-guessing themselves every step of the way. They want to get the hotshot guitar player. If we're going to have to replace Ace, let's get, let's get the fucking guy. You mm-hmm. know, let's get the guy that can noodle and blah 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 blah. blah. You know, they're gonna they're gonna keep second-guessing themselves to the point that you know it renders their their whole integrity obsolete. Whatever integrity, got no they integrity. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there was there was an integrity to what they did. If yeah. you look at it as crass commercialism, that's fine. But 
they really, you know, they 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 believed in what they did. Mm-hmm. They believe they, their own hype. Now they've seen that so much failure in the last three years. They don't believe in themselves anymore, and they're going to second guess themselves, and it's going to roll into, um, you know, uh, I guess a relatively dark album. Yeah. So, so some darker yeah. undertones and themes that they really hadn't explored yet. A lot heavier. And and but is it Kiss music? And we'll mm. we'll go into mm. we'll go into we'll go into that into greater detail in the next episode of No Time to Turn, and hopefully you guys will join us for that. And until then, I'm Russ, and for Cap and for Alex, we'll see you next time on No Time to Turn. Thank you for listening. Please insert another coin by supporting the show for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com/somethinggoodnetwork.